Welcome back to Trending in Education. Dan Strafford here getting you ready for today's conversation. Mike Palmer sits down with Larry Rudman, Vice President of Instructional Design and Research for Kaplan, Inc. They have a wide-ranging discussion in store for you, and we pick it up with Larry discussing his personal interest in learning science and education. You know, from a personal standpoint, you know, I got started uh, in education as a classroom teacher mm-hmm. back in uh, 1990, Teach for America had kicked off. Yeah. And um, I had always thought about uh, teaching. Uh, it, was a, it was a sort of big thing in my family with a lot of people uh, not actually finishing any <laughs> formal education. My brother and I were the first to actually go to college, uh, yep. the first generation. So it was a big thing. Uh, and I always found myself as the, the sort of inter- sort of connector for my mom to the outside world because English didn't make a lot of sense to her, even though it was her native tongue. Right. Um, and so I was trying to make sense of the world for my mom. So, so just being someone connected to education uh, was something that I gravitated to. Um, and, and one of the things, you know, I sort of took to as a classroom teacher was always thinking about how do I engage my students? Um, so for me, one of the biggest connections, which I think is kind of funny looking at it in retrospect, was always through a motivational lens. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I was trying to think about how do I get these students who are not that interested uh, in learning about mathematics or learning about history to find a connection to their own lives. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so it was a lot of sort of generating ideas and testing them on the fly. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the funny thing is, is then going to grad school and sort of subsequent to my teaching experience and being more invested in the academic side of education, you, you, you learn about a lot of things about how people learn, but you also sort of come to grips with a lot of the places where our knowledge about human learning really just falls off the cliff. Mm-hmm. And sort of thinking about this, this idea that, yes, there is a science that we can capitalize on, mm-hmm. but engineering is exciting in the sense that we apply what we know, as much of what we know, to real circumstances, But then there are going to be places where we have to fill in where science has left off and to almost create our own science uh, in a way and and measure it accordingly. And that's why the concept of engineering is is very um, exciting because the science does hit a wall, like not in all circumstances is there an answer for every variant uh, of every classroom or informal learning situation that'll present itself. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so that's what I find particularly attractive. And, you know, uh, I think when, when Kaplan started to embrace this idea that, yeah, let, let's actually try to codify some of this thinking, share amongst ourselves what we have been doing, mm-hmm. uh, and then measure accordingly, I, th- I think it was such an exciting place uh, and idea for me. Yeah, that's awesome. And I, I think a lot of it reminds me of a, a, a quote I've grown fond of lately, which is uh, best practices are for amateurs. So like the idea that, you know, it's established science that there's a way in which to incorporate learning objectives into your lesson planning. Like that's, that's a bit of a stretch. It's more like you should have learning objectives and you should constantly be curious about how best to apply the, that thinking to good instructional design. And I think what you're getting at is a little bit of that where like the, the problematic nature of applying science to your classroom is something that can actually be embraced 
with the right mindset. And, and I'd be curious uh, maybe about some of the thornier problems uh, you've encountered over the years, uh, you know, which domains uh, have relatively well-established research that when you then try to apply it to a real life problem, suddenly you're off the rails. So yeah. are there, are there, uh, sure. are there some examples that jump well, to mind? And, and one of the, what I like about where you, where you were going with that, Mike, is that I, you know, I hope that for us as an organization, what we embrace um, is more process than pure product. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'll give you an example on the product side, which is fascinating. So Robert Bjork is a- uh, no, no relation to the sugar cube uh, Bjork, right? Uh, no, no, no okay. relationship to that. And, and no, no relation to the failed uh, Supreme Court justice no, 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 uh, no, nominee. Okay. Not, not at all. Um, he's a professor at UCLA who has been doing research on memory for quite a while. Uh, and in examining what seemed to be beneficial uh, to students uh, in terms of learning with respect to his research, he seemed to hit upon this phenomena that when certain types of difficulties were inserted into student learning, it actually made it more challenging for them to retrieve the critical information. Yep. But that act of making it more difficult to retrieve the information improved their ability to retrieve that information at a later date. Yep. And so he coined this phrase, desirable difficulties. Mm. Certain types of things that make, that actually depress short-term performance. So like in the midst of learning something, immediately after you go through the instruction, you give someone a test, their score on that immediate test may be depressed it may not be as good as you'd hope it to be mm -hmm. but with the insertion of these so-called desirable difficulties a week out maybe two weeks out when you come back to the topic and you ask students about it mm -hmm. surprisingly enough compared to other less difficult situations they're actually better able to recall this information and use it appropriately mm -hmm. Now, so that, that's an idea, right? And it sounds really exciting. And when you read it in the popular print, everybody's like, oh, I got to get cooked into yeah. desirable difficulties, yeah. got to make difficult learning difficult. And yeah. it ties into the, the sort of soundbite culture we sometimes live in, right? Yeah. Like no pain, no gain. Right. It feels good. By the way, you're providing us a bunch of soundbites right here. So, <laughs> so please, please continue. Yeah. No, but, but it really ties into these other sort of notions that we have in our lives that, that sort of make an appeal to us and, and people will nod and go, oh, I read it. It makes sense. Yep. The problem is is that sometimes these solutions and the challenges with implementing these solutions lie in the nuances. Mm -hmm. One challenge to uh, Professor Bjork's research is, can you determine beforehand what's desirable? Because right. if you can only determine it after you've done the thing and measured it and said, oh, look, it was successful, mm -hmm. you'll never know when to apply something like that from the get-go right and if you could only learn it after the fact well how would you ever benefit from that knowledge right right, right? it's not usable yeah um and then there's this um there's this researcher who uh, i met at uh carnegie mellon university who's been doing some research into one of the areas around desirable difficulties um and it's funny his his take was completely different he mm. was like you know i really don't think we should look at it from a more difficult, less difficult perspective, his attitude was there are certain things which are just more appropriate to 
um, what you're asking students to do mm -hmm. um, in the context you're asking and how you're asking the question. The difficulty of it is less relevant uh, than the match between the instructional approach uh, and the nature of the knowledge you're, you're developing in students. So it's easy to say something mm -hmm. sometimes and these taglines get very exciting and yeah. they sound like cure-alls. Yeah. Um, and that's not the case. I'll give you a perfect example. You were asking for something that that was very exciting that we tried to apply concretely, mm -hmm. but ran into some challenges here. And, and one very good example was um, we were working with Kaplan University. And one of the challenges that Kaplan University students had was in staying the course uh, in their programs when things got difficult. Mm -hmm. So they would enroll in one semester, uh, but either sort of life would happen, the course would happen, challenges mm -hmm. would arrive, arise, and you know, people have life to deal with and, and so they couldn't continue with their studies. Mm -hmm. uh, and when you're in an online environment, unlike in a classroom environment, it's kind of easier to drop out because no one's saying, hey, where did Larry go today? Right. So we got tuned into research uh, that I think you're very familiar with, Carol Dweck's sure. research on mindset, yes. um, and other Stanford University researchers who've been sort of her, her sort of graduate student progeny who've taken up the charge of that research uh, in a group called PERTS. Uh, and so that, so that sounds like an acronym. It is an acronym, and I wish I could tell you all the parts to it. I, I know it's... Um, uh, it, it involves uh, something, uh, you know, applying these interventions at scale. I think that's ah, the that's S the part. part. Yes, yeah, the yeah. at scale. Um, so they had formulated lots of thinking about, oh, how do you actually apply mindset interventions, which are intended to get students to focus on the application of effort yeah. and overcoming challenges, as opposed to thinking, oh, it's me, if I run into a difficulty, it means I cannot do it, as opposed to, don't worry, my situation is changeable, yeah. these things are fluid, I can overcome them. Lo locus of control. Exactly, yeah. right? Because if you believe you don't have control, why put forth the effort? Right. And so they had demonstrated a number of different sort of successful interventions. Uh, one big intervention they had done was at the University of Texas, where they had provided in their orientation programs to students a small half-hour online session where they got students thinking about, okay, what does it mean to be challenged? How can I think about how effort plays a role? How in our intelligence isn't limited? It's mm -hmm. really uh, about exercising the right strategies at the right time. And they had, you know, they had seen success there where University of Texas students subsequent to the intervention were gaining more credits uh, in their first semester than students that hadn't gone through the intervention, mm -hmm. awesome. And also having a nice impact uh, on African-American students. Uh, so not just the population as a whole, but students that had been underserved uh, pr uh, previously uh, in their education gaining benefits as well. So very exciting stuff. So we thought, wow, if we're gonna partner with someone, mm -hmm. let's partner with these smart guys, right? Yeah. Like, you know, it's like, this is a whole group of people, right? Let's go to the source. I'm in, I'm, I'm in. in. Right, that's what I thought, I am in. Let's go to the medicine, the source of the medicine. Yeah. Let's get some of that. Yeah. And so we signed up with this deal where, um, you know, at the time, Kaplan University had 14 start sessions a year. Uh -huh. And so it's a wonderful opportunity to engage in engineering. You build something mm -hmm. according to theory, 
you get it to work in your context. Uh, you look at the data, you say, hey, what happened? How do we improve it if it didn't work out as well? And you really set up a nice research cycle. And we started that over a two-year period. And the first time we ran it, we ran an online intervention. Kaplan University had all of their orientation programs come in uh, online. Yep. And we reserved the last 15 minutes to do one of these PERTS mindset interventions, where we get the students thinking about, hey, you know, maybe you're going to encounter some problems, but mm -hmm. fill in the blank. Yeah, you're right? going to power through it. You're going to power through it because... It's not about intelligence. It's about effort. Yep. Problems occur. There's going to be a way to get through it. And the interesting thing is that the first time we ran it, we actually found a small but significant bump to retention. Students who went and were assigned to the uh, experimental condition actually stayed into their second course uh, with the university, mm -hmm. more so than if they went through the simple sort of control message, which was more about generic sort of study techniques um, and, uh, and being on top of your work. Mm -hmm. And so that was exciting. So we thought, okay, well, you know, you got to keep going with this stuff because the downside of research based on, uh, you know, people always hate null hypothesis testing is that, yeah. well, there's a 5% chance that it's just random. Sure. Uh, right. So, so maybe if we did this 20 times, the, this is the one time we did it where it actually worked and it has nothing to do with any real change. Right. Well, we did it again in uh -huh. the subsequent semester and we wanted to see if we applied the same intervention, would it work? And it didn't work. Okay. So we started asking the question, okay, is this just an anomaly of this student population that we assigned? Uh, was it the messaging? Maybe the messaging wasn't working. So the Stanford researchers and our team went out, we talked to more students uh, to fine tune the way we would talk to students in the intervention. Maybe something that needed to be more particular to Kaplan University students and the fact that they were you know, they're older than the typical students that had uh, had this intervention before. They're yep. average age 35. They're not first time enrollees in a program. Anyway, long story short is we ran these interventions in a variety of ways, semester, term after term. We kept getting null results. Mm. The mindset intervention did nothing for the students. Interesting. And so, you know, you look at that and you stand back and say, well, there had been a number of research articles showing its success. As applied in our context, we were having a real hard time realizing those results consistently. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just this past year, there was a meta-analysis that came out about mindset interventions as a whole, calling into question mm. some of the hype around the findings. Right. And so, you know, you sort of, you ride this wave of science as it gets published, sure. as it gets worked into engineering circumstances, that things that may seem huge as applied can be challenging. And then as we learn more things, you know, we learn about those nuances. Well, it's applied, but maybe it only works in a specific setting. Yep. Uh, and so it's hard, right? I mean, it's, if it was easy, Right. We wouldn't be talking about how to help students better succeed. Right, right. Um, but it is not science in the sense of it's a closed book. We know how to do that. Right, uh, right, right. And, and I guess, uh, you know, a lot of times the, uh, the ecological validity of the research itself 
is is challenging, right? So like frequently when you're doing research in a on undergraduates in a university setting, that those findings are challenging when you try to apply uh, the the outcomes of that research to a, a different population, which is why your example around uh, Kaplan University is is interesting because like research that maybe worked when looking at undergraduates at University of Texas, uh, Hook'em Horns, uh, when we tried to apply that to, um, to an online university, different segment, different uh, life challenges, it was, and even how you would apply that intervention, since they're an online audience, you're almost doing a different application of the same underlying theoretical framework. To me, that ties very much to the problem of instructional design and uh, learning engineering, where there is established science to a certain extent, but how much it's applicable to the unique context of a particular learning intervention, that's where a lot of the creativity around instructional design comes into play. It's almost based on the constraints around how you can deliver your instruction. How do you apply the, the, the science that, that, that maybe could power your intervention. And then also where would you actually be extending on the science by focusing within the constraints that you have? So for instance, you're running an online program as opposed to an in-person program. Can you extend what was learned in a different domain into uh, like a novel situation? That to me seems like what instructional design is I know we've talked a little bit about that. Can you talk about? Yeah, I th I think you I think you've summed it up uh, unbelievably well and really hit at a core. And you know, I'll I'll make one comment about uh you know I I referenced them before, but uh, Ken Kedinger, who's at Carnegie Mellon University, uh, has given a wonderful talk about this. Uh, in a number of different contexts where he talks about how researchers, they sort of look at these sort of binary oppositional forces. Do I give a lot of support? Do I give a little support? Um, do I give a lot of examples? Do I test first? And he was saying, you know, if you, if you sort of extend out these arguments to their logical conclusions, you know, if a student though is living in a real context, like the one you described, mm -hmm all of those sort of contextual pieces of research have to be crossed with each other. And you need good theory to help you wind your way through tests like you're describing uh, and build something more coherent. Because it's not like the student is only a motivational student or only a cognitive student, right? right? right. They're going to either be engaged or not engaged in a complex problem that will require examples or not right. uh, in, in, in a setting where, you know, it's high stakes. So throw in anxiety, not just their engagement with the current lesson. Yeah. Uh, so I think you're absolutely right. What, one case where we try to deal with this um, is, uh, so writing is a fascinating area to me. Yep, yep. And it's, it, it's fascinating to me because so many students across the Kaplan universe are engaged in writing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, first, when I think of the tens of thousands of students um, in the world uh, where we first started working with them at Kaplan University, but also the students um, who, and, and now I know the world is changing a little, but students in ACT, SAT, at a short period of time, 
had different stakes associated with writing the essay. Now I believe it is optional. But students in our other programs like KP Australia also are involved in writing essays. And so this idea of how do you write well mm -hmm. uh, is such a big thing. Now, a lot of the research, at least in the US, that's been done about how to help develop students either at a young age uh, or in community college settings has primarily been done, uh, as you were saying, in live classroom settings, mm -hmm. right? And so we were looking at this research thinking, how do we take the essence of that? And from an instructional design perspective, what is, and I, and I love this, this sort of phrasing uh, that one of the colleagues that uh, has consulted with us before Kaplan has used, uh, Dick Clark has used the term, what's the secret sauce, mm -hmm. right? Like, what is that special thing, the active ingredients in that intervention that led to it? Does it literally mean because it was done live, we have to reproduce the live setting? Yes. Or is it something of a motivational ilk, a cognitive ilk, the way the lesson is set up independent of the medium in which it's set up? Or does the medium allow us to do certain interactions just better? Right. Um, and therefore, we can't always reproduce. And so we try to look at one strand of research in the, uh, in the writing research, and it was about getting students um, to think about writing uh, in this very self-reflective way where they were imagining what they were trying to do was solve a particular problem. So they have to constantly be asking themselves, you know, who am I writing for? What am I trying to achieve? Mm -hmm. What's the structure I'm trying to write into? Um, and how do I go about keeping track of that? And trying to take some of the lessons from there and reproduce them in a in an online world. And, and that's challenging with writing. I mean, you, it, it brings up a whole host of questions of, you know, how do you facilitate feedback on open-ended assignments mm -hmm. uh, in a world where, uh, you know, teachers have only but so much time to give feedback and are trying to grade lots of essays. So it is a fascinating engineering problem yeah. uh, to think about how to bring that over. And then I think to your point of what have we learned that's new about this environment uh, and these interactions uh, that is somehow different from the original environment which was investigated. Yeah, and uh, fascinating stuff. And, and along those, along similar lines, one of the things we're very curious about here is like how are new media formats changing how we think? Uh, and, you know, when I think about writing, uh, for me, writing in hand, freehand, versus writing on a word processor uh, or in an online application, I very seldom freehand write, but when I do, I find that it, it is, and I've seen a little bit of research talking to the fact that you actually are using different parts of your brain when you force yourself to take handwritten notes. You're even forced to make different decisions about where on the physical page am I choosing to write. Right. Choices that would be differently presented if you were in a word processing application. And, and then even the idea of putting it on the page and then going back and editing after the fact, that's really a digital mindset as opposed to if I were to write it on paper, I'd have to then, you know, maybe use a first draft and then rewrite the entirety of that. I do think like the, the transferability of like maybe the, the body of knowledge around learning science, which generally a lot of that research predates sort of the digital revolution that we've been living through over the last say like 20, 30 years 
that's got to be really interesting because like I imagine your research frequently is drawing from um, more uh, in-person inter interventions and then trying to understand how transferable are these insights to digital formats and then even within digital formats like are there uh, are there effects based on the platform you're using if you're editing uh, in a more robust uh, word processing software versus in a simple uh, notepad versus using a stylus. Yeah. Uh, it's a pretty interesting, it's almost so multivariate that doing structured research has to begin to be challenging, but then flipping that around to the idea of the, the instructor uh, in that context with her students, in some ways you're almost testing which interventions work at an individual level in a more sort of open, uh, almost improvisational uh, aspect. How do you think about that? Like instructional design, maybe put differently, like how much of it is art? How much of it is science? How much of it is improvisational and how much of it is, uh, you know, teachable and known? Yeah, no, those are... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those are awesome questions. I mean, one thing um, I think about, you know, you were talking about the the impact of the the medium, and I think the thing that's so fascinating about that is in thinking about to what extent do the different medium facilitate the sort of you know what I was talking about those sort of secret sauce or active ingredient actions, right? Mm -hmm. Because if, for example, um, let's say, you know, in the process of reading, right, we know that there are certain good things from a metacognitive perspective that good readers do, right? Mm -hmm. They're engaged in a process of paraphrasing the content. They're engaged in a process of making connections between a paragraph they're currently reading and some material that they've read before. They're making those active connections uh, and they're drawing inferences about them. And, you know, when we think about paper uh, or we think about, you know, e-readers, the, uh, the question I would love us to ask is not just can we get a student to take notes on the e-reader, mm -hmm. but can we change the e-reader to facilitate the cognitive moves that would enhance deeper connections to the text. So if in fact, our focus is on how do we promote paraphrasing? How mm. do we promote uh, text to self connections, text to previous text connections? Yeah. Maybe it's not note taking, right, right? right? And so maybe it's a different sort of interactive experience. And then to your point, you know, we've talked about this before, it's not just the instructional designer in the room. Now you've got the media people, you've got the UX people, right. and the, the, the instructional designer can throw out, what I'd like to do is promote paraphrasing. We're a bunch of creative people around here. What is the nature of that interaction mm -hmm. which would make that appealing enough and not distracting enough that I as a user would actually do the right thing? Right, right. Uh, because I think you're right, like text, on a page is so wonderfully easy to manipulate. Right. One of the challenges might be that we just do the right thing just because it's easier to do. Right. Um, and the question would then be, oh, is there anything we could do if that if people are going to use e-readers um, to promote it? And maybe we even leapfrog what we can do on text. 
Right. It reminds me of the distinction between technology-driven innovation and technology-enabled innovation, where like the the new media formats that emerge can actually allow, enable improved instruction. But if you say, oh, we have a cool uh, augmented reality app, let's figure out how to apply that to better instruction. Frequently, it's the latter. Frequently, it's the technology drives the lesson planning. Right. But if it's more the problem driving, driving the application well, of the media. Right? And so I have a great example of this. Years and years ago, uh, when I was a grad student, but uh, paying for my graduate student addiction because I was addicted to taking courses by teaching sixth grade. And I was teaching sixth grade science at the time. And there had been this wonderful program, physics program, uh, created uh, by these researchers uh, up in Massachusetts at Bolt Baranek and Newman. And one of the researchers uh, was at UCAL Berkeley, Barbara White. And what they had done was, one of the challenges in physics is that in studying motion, students make these mistaken conceptions of when you apply a force to an object, what happens to it? Mm -hmm. Some students think, oh, you apply a force to an object, that force just lives with the object. Mm -hmm. Or I'm not really sure how it changes the speed of the object. And what they had done was they had used the computer environment to allow students to see phenomena which are otherwise unseeable in the natural world. You can't see a force right. on an object, mm -hmm. but through this sort of simulated environment, you were able to tag things like speed and force and actually see visual representations of these sort of invisible constructs. Yep. And that really is such a wonderful use of the technology. I, I think to your point where it was like, we have a problem that students conceptually are missing this point, but look at the computer yeah. as this wonderful ability to show us things and overlay visuals on things that aren't really there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're there, but they're, they're just so ethereal. And right. now I can see a force? That's right. crazy. Yeah, and you can do it in a cost-effective way through a computer. Like, while you're talking, it made me think about, I, recently I was watching uh, some edutainment. You know, I like my edutainment. <laughs> but I was watching some edutainment uh, where they were talking about aerodynamics. And to demonstrate the aerodynamics, they were, they were uh, showing smoke flying over an airplane wing. And then by virtue of, you could see through that intervention, how the air actually moved around the wing. And you could actually see the impact of the angle of the wing changing how the air flows by virtue of, of watching the, the sort of the visual of the smoke. Interestingly, that's hard to do, unless you have a smoke machine in an expensive lab. But if you could use technology, that's a place where, um, you know, software is making it a lot easier for us to provide higher quality uh, media, like richer media to sort of signal that. And uh, those interventions I do find interesting, like how do you equip faculty uh, with these types of tools so that they're able to, to leverage these new media um, I think a lot of it also ties to uh, to how equipped is the classroom setting for for interventions that are screen based. And then uh, another thing that we've been tracking a lot on the podcast is, you know, is there now um, enough evidence and enough of a counter movement away from too many screens 
um, it starts to get complex. I mean, every, what I love is like every conversation that we have about uh, learning science interventions wind up with, wow, this is so multivariate and so complex. Um, but in a way, I mean, what I'm hearing from you and what I think we believe uh, pretty strongly as an organization is that you, you almost want to lean into the problematicity. Like the fact that it's problematic is really where the genuine work is and where the innovation and uh, the creativity is. And uh, uh, I'm just wondering uh, for you, like which problem areas are you, you mentioned reading earlier, uh, are there other problem areas that you think are particularly um, ripe for exploration or uh, maybe most broadly uh, relevant to educators and instructional designers and learners across the entirety of the life course? Yeah, wow. <laughs> um, well, there's so many things. I, you know, I'll, I'll give one that's just a fun one of mine. Um, so in exploring some content, um, that we had uh, instruction focused on percents, right? It's something that students at Kaplan Test Prep will encounter if they're doing GRE studies. You know, you know what I say about percents? What do you say? You want to keep it 100. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's something that students um, now at Purdue Global will experience in an introductory math course. Um, and, and we have programs in uh, Australia Pathways uh, where students will encounter it as well. And, you know, in in doing some simple analysis uh, of student performance on computing things uh, like percent increase, you know, we found some simple nuances to student understanding. Uh, so for example, it actually matters whether or not students um, have problems in which they're presented with an increase of greater than 100% or less than 100%. Yep. And, you know, that seems really small, like a small part of the universe in terms of learning. But to math teachers, mm -hmm. that's like right up their alley. Fundamental, right? like, yeah. Oh, it's like so, and, and thinking about a world like that where, you know, you're putting a math teacher, a math instructor in the driver's seat to go, oh, if I really want to know if a student has mastered this concept of percent increase, I won't have done my job unless I've made sure they could do it with both uh, percent values greater than 100 and ones that are less than 100. And I think, I think that's really an important idea because the more we learn about student understanding in these different sort of domains, and you know, this example in math, the better we get a handle on what it means to do this well. Like before that, you know, I might have said, oh, I don't know, maybe there's a difference, but maybe it's not a big deal. And we may not look at our tests to say, oh, have we asked this question with enough variability mm -hmm. in the content to know what students are handling? Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think that's really important, you know, sort of looking critically at how we know that students are gaining the knowledge, what context they're, they're able to perform it in, uh, under what conditions. I think you brought this up once before, you know, even in test prep, what is the difference between doing a practice test under simulated conditions mm -hmm. where the anxiety level may rise a little right. versus actually doing it under real uh, circumstances. For sure. And, and what does that mean mm -hmm. uh, to performance? So, 
yeah, there's always more to be learned. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's also like the, the ability to understand yourself as a performer who may not be, you know, uh, optimally prepared to perform at your highest level. And how do you regulate your own learning behaviors to try to optimize yourself for the context that you're in? Because I think lots of this is where like mindfulness is really interesting and, uh, you know, metacognition and uh, like biofeedback really so that I want to be amped enough to be performing at a high level when it's a high stakes context for me, but I don't want to go so far that I start to freak out and lose the ability to perform at my best. You know, we've likened it frequently to sports where like, at least in the test prep context, you know, when it's go time and I'm taking my test, it's kind of like, you know, Tom Brady on a, on a Sunday afternoon at Foxborough or LeBron James on uh, now the court now in LA, but like it's go time and uh, strong performers uh, have had enough practice practice to, uh, to know how to perform, how to sort of harness that, yep. that energy, but also they're, they're also, they're not um, so uh, sort of, uh, awestruck by the moment that they they don't perform in an optimal uh, way, and I, I do think it's interesting to try to understand those learning like more the performative. We talked a little bit over 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 lunch. It's a good thing that we get lunch, yes. you know. It's good prep, but uh, but I do think like there is something to be said for um, training for that game time sensibility, uh, particularly on a high stakes exam so that you, you're able to stay calm enough and almost dispassionate about, enough about your own performance so that you're not becoming too obsessive about trying to answer a particular question and or too anxious about, oh my God, my whole life is on the line and I'm starting to choke. Yeah, and I, th I think this ties in very nicely with some other sort of trends that people have observed about um, people's ability to judge what they know, right? That's a whole nother area of exploration. And one of the sort of pitfalls is people can fall into this illusion of knowing, right? And, and this is a fascinating challenge. The more coherent the text or the presentation is that mm -hmm. you are either reading or consuming in some media format, whatever that is, um, you're more inclined to believe that that knowing is your knowing, right. right? And especially as you were describing, you know, if there is a degree of anxiety, the, the desire to want to believe, oh yeah, yeah, I got it, I'm okay, may increase, not necessarily for the LeBron James of the world who might be more open to analyzing their shortcomings and work to fix it, right. but how do you create a con the conditions where you get feedback that you need to improve without crushing feedback right. that you need to improve. Right. But it's challenging because when you read the, you know, when you read the text, you may be inclined without questions to think, I got this. Mm -hmm. And yet what you need are real questions to determine whether or not you can retrieve the knowledge yourself. A great conversation from Larry and Mike, honestly, 
They could have gone on for a few hours there. We'll hear from Larry again in the future. Uh, as always, share us on Twitter. Share us on Facebook. It's at Trending and Ed on both. You can find us on Podbean, on TuneIn, on Stitcher, and, of course, on iTunes. Subscribe, share, and leave comments and ratings. Of course, uh, we enjoy the conversations, want to spread them far and wide with more and more listeners as we move forward. So with all that said, we'll be back next week with a new episode of Trending in Education.